We did it. I still can't believe we got this project done so fast and so well. When I'm in New York. I'm in Chicago. And I'm in L.A. But we're making it happen in Miro. Together. Our best work just happens faster on Miro's collaborative online whiteboard. No more scheduling meeting after meeting for work that could happen from anywhere. Whether it's getting design feedback here, mapping timelines here, or brainstorming next steps here. It all just happens on the Miro board. Exactly. And it's nice not having to wait an entire day to get sign off from this guy. Hey! Well, it is true. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com. The first three boards are free forever. That's M I R O.com. The Boys in the Band podcast is brought to you in partnership with Giddy Stratospheres, the fantastic independent film by Laura Jean Marsh, set in the heart of the noughties indie scene. It's a story of furiously loyal friendship and a love song to an incredibly special time for music and mayhem, all set to the soundtrack of the best noughties indie tunes. A must-watch for any Naughties indie fan. You can buy or rent the film on a host of platforms, including Amazon Prime, Sky Store and iTunes. But as part of our partnership with Giddy Stratospheres, we're delighted to be able to offer listeners to the Boys in the Band podcast an exclusive 20% discount to rent the film via Vimeo On Demand. Just follow the link in the podcast notes or post it on our social media and enter the promo code BOYSINTHEBAND at checkout. And you'll be able to stream the film for as little as £3.59. A terrific deal that's an absolute must for listeners to this podcast. This fantastic offer is available in the UK and Ireland only at the moment and runs until 10th of September. So go check it out. Giddy Stratospheres, a film about loss and love in the storm of guitars and broken glass that was the noughties UK indie music scene. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Peter Smith. And I'm Richard Gallagher. And on this week's show, we're joined by Tom Gatorex from Black Wire. And Tom gave us a lowdown on the full Black Wire story, including some of their chaotic shows, including this notorious one at a club night in Leeds. People were sort of getting on stage and jumping about and everything was getting knocked over. And because it was so busy and the stage was really low in that place, you couldn't, I think the security couldn't really tell what was happening. They couldn't tell who was dancing and who was fighting and stuff like that. And truth be told, nobody was fighting, you know. Nobody threw a punch until the bouncer got on stage and punched me in the face. <laughs> I don't think he knew I was in the band because for some reason, I wasn't even holding my bass at the time. I don't know where that had gone. I mean, this kind of thing happened quite a lot with Black Wire gigs. It all sort of like melded into this, I don't know, I'm not going to say performance art because that, you know, denigrates <laughs> what we were doing. But it was it was really chaotic. And anyway, I ended up getting punched in the face by this bouncer. For some reason, I didn't have any trousers on either. I definitely <laughs> had trousers on when we started the gig. But the photographic evidence shows that when he accosted me, I was sort of like trouserless. So maybe I got somebody else to wear them, whoever it was that I got to play bass. Sounds like an absolutely wild gig, doesn't it, Rich? <laughs> yeah. A riot of a gig, in fact. Yeah. And a little claim to fame for Black Wire. This apparently, allegedly, it's gone down in legend, surely, an indie legend. This is the gig that led to Nick Hodgson from the Kaiser Chiefs, as he told us on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, saying to someone, oh, I predict a riot. 
and uh, of course that spawned the huge Kaiser Chiefs song so uh, yeah Tom and the Black Wire Boys have got a bit of a claim on that haven't they yeah they do indeed and uh, yeah they had a, gr- a great time touring around over those few years uh, lots of tour stories that Tom gave us uh, including many shows touring with the Cribs ne- nearly two years he said they toured with the Cribs mm-hmm. pretty much on and off <laughs> and uh, yeah close relationship with that band um, and yeah some really interesting stories about uh, some shared bills with the Libertines as well yeah, well, you say shared builds. Sounded sounded <laughs> like Pete and Co sort of muscled in a little bit, didn't it, on a few yeah, of those gigs? Bit. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, Tom was uh, yeah fascinating to listen to because he just well he knows his history. He knows how this scene came about, and uh, there's a nice segment where he sort of explains you know, how this sort of naughty's indie scene really came into being and sort of its evolution um, and influences from America and things like that. But his knowledge of sort of old enemy covers was, uh, yeah. yeah, blew me away. Um, it was just, uh, could just paint the pictures of these enemy covers from uh, sort of 16 years ago um, or more, even 10 years, 20 years ago. And of course, there was a, a nice moment as well when Blackwire, they got the last ever single of the week in enemy before it became track of the week. So, I think, you know, he touches on it in the podcast, but, you know, how special that is for someone who is so aware of the importance of Enemy and it's, it's clearly uh, had an influence on him for his band to then be celebrated in the magazine as they were. And I think uh, some of the journalists at that magazine really celebrated and triumphed um, uh, Blackwire and, and supported them and gave them a leg up. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it goes into all of that. And he talks about how they uh, went about laying down their debut album, the early experiences of, uh, of a recording studio for the first time, uh, and also about their split. And, uh, and their long-awaited second album. They were working on it when they split and they actually finally uh, put it out on, on Bandcamp during lockdown last year. So that's uh, for any Black Wire fans out there that didn't know that was available, do, do definitely check that out. It's on Bandcamp and uh, yeah, uh, Tom was very proud of it. So here's Tom Greaterex from Black Wire. This week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Tom Greaterex who played bass in Black Wire. How are you doing, Tom? I'm all good. Thank you very much. And I'm glad to see that you two are looking in fine fettle and, <laughs> and happy and sprightly, which is great. Always. Awesome. Always, Tom. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, good, good to have you on, mate. We've, uh, we're looking forward to chatting. Well, a particular live show I've got in mind I'm going to talk to you about uh, at some stage in okay. the pod. I, it still stands out in my mind, I think, maybe 16 years on. I'm struggling to pin down the exact year, but 16 years on, seeing yeah. Black Wire. Well, so uh, well, yeah, well, I'll I'm... be grilling you on that. Very short. Sure. I mean, just just from just from that you know sentence there, it could go either way. <laughs> but, you know, it could be you know amazing or one of the worst things you've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've got bones. We'll find out. Sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, Tom, we kick off these podcasts with what we call the sound check. Three quick fire questions, just to get us warmed up if we're not sprightly enough. And uh, mm-hmm. the first one is always, "Where are you?" Uh, I'm currently in Muswell Hill, North London. Very nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, second up in the sound check, Tom, is uh, what are you listening to at the moment? Um, at the minute, um, so in terms of new bands, there's a band from uh, Leeds, actually, called Mush, who, uh, I don't know if you've heard them, but they're incredible. The singer sounds, he sounds like... Brian Ferry if he'd got trapped in that machine um, in the fly with some like a a load of like guitar effects pedals they're amazing Um, there's a band called um, oh what do you call it Um, uh, Self Esteem I mean you know I don't know how I got that name you know they're huge at the minute Um, 
and the new Dublond record, um, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Um, I think everything they put out is incredible, but the new one is like this perfect pop grunge banger. It's uh, it's superb. Um, but other than that, I think I've been listening to like loads of old stuff, loads of old sort of like techno and kind of like a lot of like sort of thrash metal for some reason. I don't know, like sometimes your, your psyche just needs a certain type of like music. <laughs> and at the minute, for some reason, it's like really harsh kind of like, you know, brain scrambling sounds for whatever, for whatever reason that what is. What does that say about it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, like, exactly, you know. I mean, next week it'll probably be something completely different. You know, it'll probably be some sort of like 60s, like yeah. folk kind of thing. But for now, it's just anything that's a racket. Nice, self-esteem and then fresh metal. Interesting mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, well, you yeah. know, it's, it's good to sort of like mix it up a little bit. Yeah, definitely, yeah. We've got a lot of time for Rebecca on this podcast. We had her on last summer talking about slow club and a bit of self-esteem as well. So it's great to see what she's doing now. Yeah. Um, third question, Tom, in soundcheck. Well, it's what are you painting? I understand you're an art teacher now. But- yeah, um, well, see, when people say art teacher, they, they do automatically think painting i did but i've i don't think i've i don't think i've painted a picture since i was at school but i do mainly sort of graphic design digital design um and stuff like that so yeah it's a lot of um a lot of sort of like digital and screen printing stuff at the minute we've only just started back at college as well so um you never know i might get back into painting this term I mean, it's unlikely. I was shite at it at school, so I can't imagine I've got any better by not doing it over the past sort of 30 years. Yeah, no, I like that. You can't paint, but you found a way into sort of art through digital yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well you know, it's the, it's, it's the blessing of modern technology. Everyone's a genius these days, aren't they? Yeah, you, you, you can sell that stuff as, was it NFTs? If you make it yeah, I mean, here? I don't... Uh, the, I don't really know what any of that is. I don't really know. No. Is it non-fungible token? That's the one, yeah. You know, and like last year, I'd never heard the word um, furlough. This year, I'd never heard the word <laughs> fungible. And yet here it is, <laughs> yeah. you know. It's co- common parlance now. And I still yeah. don't really know the etymology of either of them. So Yeah, I'll just drop know, NFT I'll into conversations and... Just yeah, <laughs> conversations and try and get away with it, really. Yeah, I thought it was something to do with American football, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, really interested to hear what you're up to these days in terms of the art. But let's uh, let's turn the clock back now, Tom. Let's uh, go back to the start of the Black Wire story. Was it around the early 2000s when yourself and Dan started the band off? Yeah, but I, I, it was actually 2002 that okay. we sort of formed. So Dan and Sai. Had known each other since kids, uh, living in Middlesbrough. And I was living in Leeds at the time. I'd just finished university and they'd come down um, to Leeds uh, to start uni themselves. And they'd started making um, some sort of demos and songs on this uh, like multi-track Zoom. It's kind of like a portable studio uh, with like with a drum machine built in. And which is why, you know, we started with a drum machine because it was it was just there. It was simple. It was quick. It was easy. We could do everything we wanted to do with it and get the sound that we wanted. Um, and we didn't have to, you know, faff about. We could just get stuck in. Uh, so, yeah, it was 2002 that we started. But then I think it was I think it was about two or three months, maybe 
after we'd first started uh, writing together that we had our first gig. And, and I think we'd only rehearsed in an actual rehearsal space uh, maybe two or three times. Yeah, but that, you know, it's punk rock, isn't it? So you've got to yeah, do. yeah. And is this the infamous gig at Pigs that was uh, set up by uh, Ricky and Nick from the Kaiser Chiefs? Is that the, um, the first gig? Well, yeah, the, the first one was at Pigs. Um, and, but it's not, it's not the one that you're thinking of, if I'm thinking of the one that you're thinking of. That one came a little bit later. That one came about six months later. So well, tell, us, tell us about uh, that one. Uh, <laughs> well, so the first one, I mean, um, Nick and Ricky from Kaiser Chiefs, they were in a band called Parva at the time. So the Kaiser Chiefs hadn't sort of like come together yet. Um, we'd been, so we'd done our first tour um, and we'd, we'd put it together ourselves and we just did it on trains. So we scraped enough doll money together to get to the first gig. On, on a train and then the money from each subsequent gig would pay for the train fare to the next one um, and so we'd, we're carrying amps and all this and we did did this tour um, we just sort of went all around the country and we came back and obviously we'd got sort of like the bug so we rang uh, Nick up and said listen we get back to Leeds tonight can we come straight down to Pigs and play a gig he's like yeah yeah do it so so we turn up and set up and the place was rammed. I mean, not, I don't mean it's rammed just for us. You know, the, like, that club night was always absolutely rammed because it was the only place in Leeds at the time to go and listen to that kind of music. So it's really busy. And see, this is where it gets a bit foggy. I can't remember if it's because we were fucking amazing that night or absolutely shite, right? <laughs> but what happened was people were sort of getting on stage and jumping about and everything was getting knocked over. And because it was so busy and the stage was really low in that place, you couldn't, I think the security couldn't really tell what was happening. They couldn't tell who was dancing and who was fighting and stuff like that. And truth be told, nobody was fighting, you know. Nobody threw a punch until the bouncer got on stage and punched me in the face <laughs> i don't think he knew i was in the band because for some reason i wasn't even holding my bass at the time i don't know where that had gone i mean this kind of thing happened quite a lot with black wire gigs it all sort of like melded into this i don't know i'm not going to say performance art because that you know denigrates <laughs> what we were doing but it was it was really chaotic and anyway I ended up getting punched in the face by this bouncer. For some reason, I didn't have any trousers on either. I definitely <laughs> had trousers on when we started the gig. But the photographic evidence shows that when he accosted me, I was sort of like trouserless. So maybe I got somebody else to wear them, whoever it was that I got to play bass. Um, and so all this was going on. And I remember um, Nick telling me afterwards as we were sort of like loading out, um, it was like, uh, yeah, it, you know, it, it was crazy. And I was saying to the guy who run the place, I was like, oh, now I predict a riot here and I'm surprised there wasn't one and all that. I'm like, all oh, right, yeah, yeah, great. And then the next thing I know is gone and written this hit song called I Predict a Riot. Now, I don't know if you two know much about sort of like, you know, music industry legalities, but I think that that we should have got some sort of royalty from that. Oh, yeah. Don't hold a grudge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and he took yeah. himself on the uh, songwriting credits for that, I think, so. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how these things work. We never really um, we never really had any dalliances with sort of like lawyers or anything like that. We, we were too <laughs> DIY, you see, so. You know. Yeah, definitely need a credit there, didn't you, for, for, for Tom and his trouserless performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know. Love it. Yeah, we had uh, Nick on the pod a few weeks ago, back. and Rich, yeah, yeah I can I clearly remember him. That, yeah. yeah, I clearly remember him saying that. He's saying to yeah. someone, yeah, just when to, he's all kicking I off. I just want to point out, right, that, you know, I don't expect songwriting credit, Nick. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, just, just the, 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 the friendship, the friendship that he, that he and I have is more than any sort of royalty check could buy. <laughs> yeah, we believe it. <laughs> um, but, so tell us then a little bit Tom about that lead scene you mentioned um, that was sort of the, the one and only place to go at the time um, obviously it was yeah. a, a, a city which ended up producing you know quite it's, it's more than its fair share of bands around that time yeah it was it was, sort of, it was quite strange really so I moved to Leeds from Derby um, in 99 to go to university um, and around that time, sort of the Leeds music scene, from what I, you know, what I saw of it, was kind of like there's a lot of sort of like post rock sort of like bands going on, a lot of kind of like uh, ska punk and all that kind of thing. And then I think like anybody who started off in the very early 2000s, um, you know. Um, who were into music and stuff, so two things kind of like happened. It was like, so everyone talks about the, the I Heart Enemy, uh, I Heart New York Enemy issue and how sort of influential that was, which it was absolutely. But like before that, I mean, you guys probably remember, uh, the enemy were really pushing this sort of like smaller scene that didn't have a name. So you got like um, Andy Noah's by the Trail of the Dead um, at the drive-in and sort of all these kind of like more art rocky sort of bands um, because obviously he had you know the big thing at the time was like new metal or sports metal or whatever you wanted to call it um, which you know was just this vulgar display of kind of like toxic masculinity and then you'd kind of got uh, which was very sort of American you know it was very stateside and over here we've got like uh, the new acoustic movement, which was equally as dire, but in, you know, sort of like polar opposite ways, you know, it's the most inoffensive sort of, um, it was just drab, you know, kind of like peeling wallpaper music. Um, and I suppose that kind of grew out of sort of uh, people wanting to emulate what, from what I could tell, kind of like what Radiohead had done on the bends, you know, it's, you know, they, they didn't really have the uh, ingenuity or talent to do OK Computer. So they just took all this sort of like more acoustic -y things. Anyway, I'm digressing. Um, so, so um, at the drive in and Trail of the Dead, uh, they came to Leeds um, within a couple of weeks of each other and they were playing really small venues. It was really exciting. And it seemed like something different was sort of happening. And then, then 
NME put at the driving on the cover and it says, is this the new Nirvana? Yeah, which is going to sell loads of copies, but not great for a band who were quite clearly strained anyway. And then they broke up and it, it, nobody really knew what was you know, going to come and go. Um, and then, yeah, then there was the I Heart New York enemy issue. And that sort of changed everything um, in terms of not just the way bands are sounding, um, but in terms of what people were doing creatively, I think, because th that issue, um, it also talked about lots of club nights uh, in New York, a lot of fanzines that were going. I think that sort of um, galvanising people's minds that, oh, yeah, we can do this, even if we can't be in a band. We can start a club night and we can start a fanzine or, you know, um, we, we can just get together as like a collective and do something. Um, and so I think what came out of that was because the strokes were so massive at the start, you know, they, they, they were the, the biggest thing ever. But within that issue of that magazine, You'd got, um, you know, you got things like Moldy Peaches and Interpol and, um, you know, Andrew WK and things like that. Bands that, you know, are ostensibly guitar bands, but had got quite a different sound to them. And I think um, that opened up a lot of people's minds to not just sort of guitar music, but to like, like electronic music that's coming over as well. So you've got stuff like Fisher Spooner, um, The Faint, Radio 4, to a degree, The Rapture, although they were still more of that, that guitar side. And I think a lot of that, I think, at least comes down to the fact that the, the production on the Strokes songs um, was so sort of um, left field from what was mainstream at the time that it didn't just open up this gateway for these bands. I think it opened up people's minds and ears in terms of lift, listening to music differently. They were hear, hearing music that was produced in a completely different way. And because of that, a lot of this electronic music kind of seeped in as well, because I think people's minds are a little bit more open. Um, and so, yeah, so Nick and um, a friend called Ash and Ricky, then started this club night called Pigs because they'd read about uh, Trash, Errol Alkins Trash <clears throat> in London. And they read about it in the Face magazine or Dazed and Confused or something like that. And um, I did the flyers for the uh, first night and we were handing out around town. Um, and, and it was like the first night and we thought, well, I mean, you know, 10 people could turn up, 100 people could turn up. I think something like 500 people turned up to this like 400 capacity sort of like little club in the centre of Leeds. And it was so strange because you'd see all these people queuing outside that some faces you'd recognise from seeing walking around town and some you wouldn't. But everyone was kind of like sort of dressed completely differently to how you'd seen them maybe a month before. And it, it just all happened really quickly and kind of like snowballed from there. And I think around the country, the same thing was happening in loads and loads of different cities all at the same time. Everybody had sort of like clicked and gone, right, this, this is our time to do something. All this talk of Britpop 
and grunge and all that that we were slightly maybe slightly too young for at the time this is the time to you know make our sort of mark with what's happening yeah great analysis of uh, the situation at that time there tom um you know you spoke about the enemy and clearly sort of your sort of clear um sort of pictures in your mind of of what they were saying at certain times and and, and how important some of those covers were, for instance. Mm. So just winding uh, the clock on a little bit, how blown away were you then when Attack, Attack, Attacks named their single of the week? Because clearly it's a publication you obviously got high regard for. Yeah, I mean, um, it was really strange. I think, I think the enemy at that time, I could be wrong, but I think that was just at the point that... Um, Connor McNicholas was taking over and everything was changing ever so slightly. Um, it had not quite gone into that sort of tabloid heat format that it, it became maybe 18 months later. It, it was still, it was, you know, there was still um, touting of quite a few sort of like esoteric bands and things like that. Um, but with the single of the week, it was really strange because um None of us had ever been in a band before. I think Sign might have been in a band before um, in Middlesbrough. Um, but Dan and I certainly hadn't. And um, so when we started, we never really had this kind of like focused um, goal that we'd get to. We were never like, right, okay, so five-year plan, we're going to be playing Wembley or something like that. Every day was just this exciting thing because we're in a band. It's like now we're playing a gig you know we're we're in a recording studio and so we put this record record out ourselves um and it only came out on like seven inch vinyl i think it's like 500 copies of it um and there was a guy in london called andy fraser um who did press for lots of sort of like bands at the time i think at the time he was doing the charlatans i think he still might uh, but he was doing uh, the Libertines um, press. Um, and he'd, I can't remember if he'd seen us playing in London or if he'd somehow heard the record, but he he was like, I want to work with you guys. And I was like, right, yeah, fine. You know, we don't know. <laughs> Never met anybody who does press for anything. You know, we've got no gauge of whether, you know, this is a, a good move or anything like that. I don't think anything we thought of was in terms of like, is this a good sort of career or business move? But anyway, he took it on. Um, and uh, there's a guy at NME called Piers Martin. Um, I cannot give this guy enough credit, like seriously. Um, from what I heard, he sort of believed in that record so much and loved that record so much that he fought tooth and nail to get it single of the week. I think it was meant to be reviewed two weeks before um, it actually came into the NME. Um, but he was like, I'm, we're not reviewing this until it's allowed to be single of the week, um, which I think, you know, is just testament to, I don't know, just the fact that somebody believing something so much is is you know really heartwarming um and another great thing about it was it was the last single of the week to ever be in the enemy because oh. the week after it was changed to track of the week 
because that's when they started reviewing downloads and mm-hmm. digital releases and things like that. So, you know, in the grand scheme of, you know, the music business, it's probably not the greatest achievement. But mm-hmm. when you're growing up in a small shitty town like Derby and you're obsessed with whatever is single of the week that week and where can I get hold of it and what does it sound like? And, you know, to, ha- to have something single of the week is great. Yeah, amazing. And um, and someone else really, really amazing, Tom, was sort of looking at some of the bands that you uh, you, you toured with or, or supported at various times, or maybe they uh, maybe supported you, but bands like The Libertines and Block Party, Future Heads, Art Brute a little bit later. So yeah, what, are your memories, yeah. what are your memories of all, all those sorts of bands? Um, well, I think, the, I think both times, I think we supported The Libertines twice, maybe three times. No, it was twice actually, and both times was completely by accident. Um, the first time we played with them was at the Barfly in Camden, um, and it was meant to be our headline gig. Um, the Queen's the Noise um, were put in as on the Queen's the Noise for anybody who doesn't know, um, two DJs and promoters that were, you know, they championed a lot of bands um, at the time, a lot of like smaller bands. And uh, they booked us to play the Barfly. It's going to be our headline gig. And we got there and uh, we were asked, would you mind if um, Pete Doherty went on after you? And we're like, well, Geezer's in prison, isn't he? He's like, this is <laughs> when he'd been banged up for booting his mate's door in. And we're like, well, well you know, he's it, it, banged up. And it's like, no, no, he, he, uh, he got out yesterday and he wants to do a gig. And it's like, oh, right, okay, well, we can't really say no because, I mean, you know, I'm sure you know what he's like. He'd have just fucking turned up anyway, wouldn't he? You know? So it's best to just kind of like, you know, a bit of damage limitation, go, yeah, all right. And so, and then about like an hour later, they were like, oh, um, it, it's going to be Pete and Carl. And anyway, this sort of farce went on until it was about 10 minutes before uh, they were meant to be on. Then it was like the whole of the band, it was the whole Libertines. And like, they've got no equipment. Can you borrow your equipment? And I'm like, yeah, I suppose so. But we haven't got a drum kit. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know what the drummer's going to do. We've only got a drum machine. Well, they got one from somewhere. And it was, um, yeah, I mean, the, the gig was crazy. Um, it was insane. And then the second time we played with them was in Middlesbrough. Again, meant to be our headline gig. I can't remember what the <laughs> venue was. I'm sure the other two uh, would know because it's their hometown. Uh, and again, exactly the same thing happened. You know, it, it was sort of, it started to feel like a bit of a curse. So anytime after that, if somebody said, Do you, uh, is it okay, Pete Doherty plays after you, just said, no, you can fuck <laughs> off. You can go and play shoeless in that flat. And earn some crack money or whatever it was that you did. Not jumping on our bandwagon. <laughs> Playing with the Rapture was just an incredible experience. I, that was at the cockpit in Leeds. And I remember, I think all three of us at the time, we were like, can we just like cut some songs out of the set or something? Can we finish early? Because we just, we want the Rapture to go on and see them. You know, that, that was mega exciting. Um, I don't remember playing with Block Party. Um, but then I've never really—I was never really into them, so I might have just gone home after that. <laughs> I mean, that 
that's unlikely that I went home. I just probably went somewhere that they weren't. <laughs> I guess, Ben, you toured with quite a lot with the Cribs as well. Yeah, um, I think we did sort of... I think, all in all, we were probably on tour with the Cribs for about two years, <laughs> um, kind of on and off, which is an amazing experience. And I think um, around that time when we started, um, the Cribs was sort of the only band that we had any sort of affinity with. Um, I mean, we musically, we sounded really quite different, but I think we, we'd got, we, we shared a very similar sort of um, like DIY kind of um, sort of like punk rock attitude in, in the most traditional sense, um, you know, not in any sort of like, affectation or anything like that we you know we were quite prepared to just do whatever we wanted to do to do a gig or to make a record or something and I think they they felt a kinship there um and yeah I think I mean the Cribs to this day are the band that I've seen play the most I must have seen them play about 200 times and every single one of them has been incredible yeah I mean, what, what a life first, band, yeah yeah you know every Every time they go on the stage, it's just, you know, the the dynamics of that band is something that can't be replicated, you know. And there's been plenty of bands after them that have tried to replicate it, and it's just, you know, that spark ain't there. Those lads have got it, whether it's because they're brothers. I don't know whether it's because they're absolutely amazing songwriters and their influences are far more wide-ranging than a lot of the other bands that tried to copy them. I don't know, but whatever it is, they've got it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the gig that I mentioned at the top of the show was a Cribs gig, actually, Tom. It was um, at the Garage in London, I think 2005, right. I think only because that was yeah. when their second album came out, and I think it might have been a promo gig for that. Yeah, but anyway, I think, you know what? Yeah. I think it might have been sort of towards the end of 2004, Ah, I okay. Seem to think, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember it being really cold, so I know it was sort of like winter time. So it was probably end of two thousand and four, start of two thousand. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it was just um, incredible gig. As I said earlier, like Crips, amazing live band. Anyway, but you guys, you know, setting it up for them, which is incredible. The stage invasions all night long. It was just crazy yeah, and chaotic. Yeah, yeah. I think we actually yeah. ended up. I think me and my mates ended up chatting to you you guys and the rest of black wire before the show out the back of the uh, venue, right okay the garage you could sort of go around the side and out the back and yeah yeah behind there but yeah chatting and you guys were just just buzzing for it and it was just interesting i think for to, to talk to a band just before they go go on stage for a gig like that and then seeing the, the craziness of the gig and then ended up in the after party afterwards next door and it's just like for me that's like oh what a brilliant night out still talking about it 16 years later but it's a yeah, glimpse yeah. isn't it into like that sort of life you guys are leading almost every night of the week I guess yeah I think it was um and, and it's kind of odd because I've been in that position myself um you know before before I was in a band and you'd like when I was younger like I wouldn't drink when I went to gigs because I'd want to remember everything and I'd get there early because I'm a nerd and I'd want to sort of like hopefully bump into the bands and stuff and I remember that happening um it must have been 98 or something with Idlewild you know it's like these people I've only ever seen in magazines and they're there mm -hmm. they're loading their equipment into the venue you know probably 
you know, doing this backbreaking work and now I'm running up going, oh, excuse me, can you say this <laughs> and all that? But it is, it, it's brilliant. Um, and then I think sort of on the kind of flip side of that, personally, and well, I know it's the same for Dan and Sai, um, meeting people before and after gigs was always an absolute joy. It was never a chore because you're just finding out, you know, you live, you know, you're on tour, you you live in this sort of like peripatetic lifestyle. Um, and to not, I think, to not engage with the people that are from the places that you go into is not only a missed opportunity, but it's just downright fucking rude. Do you know what I mean? You know, but always take every opportunity to speak to anybody who came to our gigs because, it, you know, if there was no one there, then there wouldn't be any gigs so you know you, you have to give everyone the time of the day yeah and fans massively appreciate that that input from the band as well don't they they really appreciate uh, that time that bands might give them on, on those fleeting moments before and after gigs so yeah fair play for doing that Tom I think that's a, a good a good match to have but um we'll take a quick break there uh, and we'll pick up in part two where we'll talk about the debut album and what came next for the band I'm Tom from Blackwire, and you're listening to Boys in the Band podcast. Ugh, another pointless video call where nothing gets done. I think you're on mute, David. Uh, oh, sorry. What did I miss? IT just approved Miro for the whole company. Miro? That's the... Online whiteboard for team collaboration. We can make these long video meetings so much shorter with Miro boards. We can share ideas, feedback, and updates on them whenever. Actually see what we're talking about? It's all online. Miro will make our flexible work setup so much easier. With one virtual space for our brainstorms, projects, presentations. Oh, that sounds kind of amazing. So I don't need to wake up for 6 a.m. calls with the London office anymore. Now you're getting it. Don't let time zones get in the way of your team working well together. See why 99% of the Fortune 100 trust Miro to get good work done from anywhere. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M I R O.com. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages, and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast, where we've got Tom from Blackwire. Um, Tom, let's talk about laying down that self-titled de- debut album, um, which came mm-hmm. out in 2005. Um, we mentioned at the end of the first part about sort of your, your fantastic live shows. So how do you go about capturing that sound on record? Um, well, as I said before, none of us had ever been in a recording studio before. You know, it was completely sort of like virgin ground. Um and if this sort of sequence of events hadn't happened, I don't know how or when we would have got into a recording studio, but we were playing a gig at the cockpit in Leeds. Um, I can't remember. I, I don't know if we were supporting anybody or what, um, but there was this guy came up to us afterwards um, and it turned out his name was Chuck Hussain, um, who was um, a producer and he got a studio out in Pudsey, just outside of Leeds. And he came up to us, and the first thing he said, he said, I saw you lads on stage, and you were like the visual equivalent of a scream. 
right? which is you know exactly what you want to hear when you're like in sort of like a punk rock band you know so um he said you know do you have a manager or anything like that um and i was like yeah we've got a manager we've got a manager we, i mean we didn't really have a manager there was this this lad who worked in a local record shop um that said he'd be our manager and we said, well, why would you want to do that? He said, well, I've got a credit card. I went, well, fine. Okay, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> um, so, so you've got a manager. I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, go and talk to that lad over there. And then I think it was probably in the space of about maybe even a week later, we were in the studio um, recording the first single and stuff like that. And so subsequently, we carried on working with Chuck for um, all the other singles. And then it got to the point where he was like, you're going to have to do an album, you know? And I think we were really lucky in the fact that now this sounds kind of like, um, you know, uh, I don't know how to put it, but we were really lucky to not have a record label because it meant we could, so we could make the art that we made in exactly the way that we wanted to do it. We didn't have pressure from anyone to change anything. Um, and we were just guided, you know, in a really sort of like what felt like a pair of safe hands with Chuck. Um, and so we spent quite a lot of time making the album um, because we were sort of like intermittently touring at the time. Um, and so I think the uh, songs that are on the album I think that is every song that we had written at the time. You know, I hear these bands and they go, oh, well, we went in and recorded 50 songs and then it took us like two weeks to whittle down what we'll go on, you know. And we had these whiteboards up with all these different sort of like, you know, track listings on it and things like that. And we fell out about this. There was none of that, you know. It's like, these are the songs that are going on the album because these are the songs that we've got, you know. If we get to do a second album, we'll just worry about that then. You know, every single thing was kind of like flying by the seat of our pants. Um, and we were kind of like, I think we had the opportunity to sort of indulge our sort of like every whim with that recording. And I, that's not, you know, I'm not trying to suggest that we were getting like orchestras in or anything like that because we weren't. But, you know, it was sort of like um, just having the time to learn in the studio as well uh, so if we wanted something to sound a certain way but we didn't really know how to verbalize what we wanted we were given the time and the space and the opportunity to experiment to find you know what it was that we were trying to put our finger on and i think a lot of bands um at any point during the career don't really get that um so yeah, it was it was a fantastic experience. And then it came out, we put it out ourselves, just like we did everything. Um, and then it came out and we just went back on tour and we went to Europe and America and Europe again. And it was everything you could ever want, but without any money. And what are your memories of, you know, when you finally got that album out you know was there um a sense of uh, i'd imagine a certain element of pride of actually getting that record out especially how sort of uh, diy you went with it but how about how it went down with the fans how it went down with the music press did you were you looking into that too much 
Yeah, um, I think um, we went into, so the day it got released, uh, we went into town because we, we, would, we were doing three gigs in one day. We were doing an in-store gig at Jumbo Records, then we were going up north, play somewhere in Stockton, I think, and then Middlesbrough. And I was walking around town and I went into HMV. And you know, the sort of like display racks that's showing like the new records, it was like a big line of them along there. And again, you know, it's like that sort of childhood dream to see a record in HMV and sort of like Woolworths and things like that. You know, the, the only two places growing up that you could really buy music um, from sort of like, you know, like a small town or whatever. Um, so that was amazing. Um, just having it physically in your hand was incredible. I think um, everybody who was into the band got exactly what they expected to get from the album, which is, you know, which is what you want to do. You know, you don't really want to make, uh, put an album out and it'd be an education for people. You know what I mean? We started the band because we wanted to make people dance and have a good time. So why not sort of carry that sort of that that ideal through everything else that you do um it the press was was really really good i think sort of like i think it was vice magazine that gave it like 10 out of 10 or something like that um and you know i think we were reviewed like in there was a review in the sun which is you know not something to be proud of at all but it was kind of shocking for us for the fact that it's just this self-produced self-released record um for some reason the enemy review didn't come out for like a month afterwards and i don't know what all that was about but fuck them guys you know what i mean um and then there was another magazine that i i, I did make a mental note before we started this that i wanted to mention because i think when people are talking around this sort of time, this era of music, I think it kind of gets forgotten a little bit um, because of Vice and Enemy. But Art Rocker magazine, don't know if you guys remember Art Rocker. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I think you know, I think they deserve far more mentions on you know by people on on you know, being interviewed in podcasts and in press and stuff like that um, because they really sort of they really gave a leg up to a lot of independent and smaller bands at the time and kind of created their own scene and their own buzz you know ar around this thing and again you know great review in there and yeah it was brilliant i think the only only place that didn't really have any traction was radio but you kind of got to remember that at the time um there was no bbc6 music you know um there was no podcast, there was no sort of digital radio. Um, John Peel had just died. So there's kind of like the show that you'd expect to be sort of like championed on. There's no longer there. Um, so radio was never really a thing for us. But then, you know, I listened back to that record the other day, you know, thinking about doing this podcast. And I couldn't imagine any of those songs on the radio anyway, you know which is fine. I think it's, uh, to an extent, I think it's too weird, which is great, you know, because it's not fucking Kings of Leon, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, I mean, yeah, you got so much out of that debut album sort of in terms of, you know, what you, you were hoping to achieve with it. 
Um, and I know you guys started working on the second album, 2007. But obviously, that never came out um, at that time. So, so what happened there and sort of what led to the band um, stopping at that point? Um, well, we had this gig booked at Coco in London. Um, we'd played there. Um, we played there a couple of times, but this was kind of like Salters as the big gig. You know, mm. so and so is going to be there. This is this person's going to be there. You know, this plug is going to be there. All this kind of stuff. And you know, so you know, we're told you know, just get everything right. You know, just don't fuck up. Right, famous last words, isn't it? <laughs> so you know. Sound check, everything's brilliant. We're dead excited. Get ready to go on stage. Drum machine's just not working. Just didn't work. And it's like, there's, there's nothing we can do, you know. And so it was sort of after that, that was partly a catalyst for us um, getting uh, an actual physical human drummer. Um, but I say partly because the other part of it was the songs we were writing at that point, necessitated to have um, a real life, you know, living, breathing drummer. Um, and so once, um, I think we'd, we'd only auditioned one other person, um, this, uh, a guy who lived in Leeds and weren't re really working out. We met this guy called Danny Prescott. Uh, he was from Bermondsey in London. Um, and he came up to Leeds and practiced with us. And it was perfect, you know. And all these songs that we've been writing and um, trying to put together kind of sort of it just like formed perfectly once we got a, a real drummer. Um, and for that record, I think uh, we had, we were working out with like a couple of different producers and, and you know, three or four different um, recording studios. And um, we'd demoed it all and we were ready to go and then for various reasons that bands break up we, we split up and it kind of just got lost in the ether or on someone's hard drive and you know nothing ever got done with it until lockdown last year yeah. when we kind of we all kind of said well look you know it's sitting there we might as well do something with it you know everyone's bored let's put it out and so we put it on Bandcamp and it was great. The response is absolutely fantastic. And I think when we broke up, I think my biggest regret at the time was that record never came out. I was gutted about it because I've, you know, personally thought it was absolutely fantastic. And um, it's whether it came out then or it came out last year to me doesn't matter. The fact that it's out there and it exists. Um, is enough you know i think uh, the, the the fact that it's there it, it, you know it doesn't matter yeah absolutely so, i mean it's so good to get that that out like you say you're sitting on those those songs for was it nearly 14 years or, or whatever it was 13 14 I years i think it was yeah yeah it's good you know, it's 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 yeah. yeah 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 you know it, it's a ridiculous amount of time isn't it you know yeah. um and yeah you know just i'm mega happy with it yeah yeah and also just, anybody who's listening go on to band count and buy it yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah um yeah just to talk about band camp there tom obviously like spotify and apple music seems to dominate that kind of 
know, the market in terms of streaming. So what was the idea behind going with Bandcamp? Was it the fact that they sort of look after artists better or it was easy, easier to monetize? Uh, what was the thinking? I think it just, I, I think it actually came down to the reason we chose Bandcamp was because, now I could be wrong because I'm not a particularly um, tech savvy person, but I think the choice was that it just sounds better on there for some reason. There's less compression than than other sites. Um, I, th- I think that's what it was. And, uh, and you can charge people money, which is great because people get too much for fucking free. These days. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Like, if people, people, we did put it up so that people can download it for free if they want. Like, I don't give a shit if we make any money from it at all. I'm just, I'm just being daft. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. I think, um, you know, uh, it was odd at the time going back to sort of like the the early 2000s when if you wanted to see something online, you had to download it from LimeWire and places like yeah. that, and just seeing. Yeah seeing the sort of like evolution of, of online music is wild. And, and I still think a lot of that is down to MySpace. You know, I think MySpace embedding players into people's profiles was, was genius because it kind of meant musically recondite interests were sort of no longer delineated geographically. You know, you could, be, you could listen to a band one night, you know, on the internet and then see that they're playing in your town the next day and you could go and you could sing all the words out mm. and it was brilliant. You know, I'm all for file sharing. I'm all for mm. sort of like giving music away for free uh, to an extent. I think back then, I think, I think an advantage has been taken um, to a lot of artists, particularly, you know, I mean, Spotify and the nefarious ways that they sort of like you know treat artists is grotesque um but back then i think you know just the excitement of going i've made something here it is you know i made this today you can listen to it right now i'll come into your town tomorrow to play a gig learn the yeah. words it's yeah mega exciting yeah and also spent so long on myspace going through what was it called? It's like the connections. So it's like if you're into this band, you're going to be into this band, and it was just exactly sort of yeah. Got into that sort of wormhole, didn't you? Of sort of just finding yeah. more and more bands, and uh, it was just yeah, quite, quite we, a it, discovery. It, yeah, it was brilliant. Um, I, and obviously, you got sort of like um, people like Arctic Monkeys, Jamie T, Lily mm. Allen, who who sort of like their career was sort of like birthed from online file sharing. I think Arctic, Monk- Arctic Monkeys, particularly from the um, Libertines message board and things like that. Yeah. Um, but then again, you know, sort of, you know, when you have that freedom to release anything you want, you do end up getting stuff like the others slipping through the net. You know, and maybe should have stayed under the rock that they came from. <laughs> <laughs> that's just my opinion. That's not the opinion of everyone in Black Wire, even though it probably is. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been it's, it's, it's so interesting how um, music sharing online has just come so far since, since back then. Like you say, it was there was much more um, 
I think artists were much more happy to give away their music for free and it's just gone so far the other way yeah. now that they're just not getting because back then they knew that fans would still go out and buy the record and mm. still go out absolutely and, yeah and, and yeah. come to the gigs or whatever and and now yeah. there's just so little money and actually selling on or through the streaming sites it's just, yeah uh, yeah they're not getting rewarded it, I mean, I think there's there's a real fine line back then where you could release or you could give things away for free online and there was still enough money within the record industry to make a record deal from that you know i think that probably it was probably only about from the, the the height of the file sharing thing i think it was probably only about 18 months to two years before um the music industry kind of like shit its collective trousers and just didn't know what to do you know i think they'd ignored this thing for so long that they'd kind of painted themselves into a corner where you know they monetarily they, they were getting diminishing returns and therefore couldn't put it back into any bands um and so you get record companies relying on you know one at the most two bands kind of like to be this umbrella of money to keep everything else afloat which is i mean any other industry on the in the world would not exist with that sort of you know on paper it just wouldn't exist so why should it there you know yeah yeah absolutely um tom it's been brilliant to get the black wire story uh so far with you but we're going to wrap things up now with uh, with our encore uh, first uh-huh. question in the encore, not to go to sort of heat gossip column on you, but you know, we know you're in um, an indie, a naughty's indie power couple you know, with your partner, Laura Jean Marsh, who our listeners will know is the, the writer, director, and star of Giddy Stratospheres, a DJ and artist in her own right back in the day. So, yeah. you know, would you guys or have you guys col- collaborated on music together? Could you be the ultimate sort of power rock duo? Um, we haven't, but. <laughs> I have been planting the seed of, <laughs> of some sort of thing. Um, so I've got this fucking great band name, right? Called the Worms. So <laughs> W-E-R-M-S, you know, which is kind of like how I say worms, but with my accent, the Worms. And it would be, I just imagine it as kind of like this moldy features kind of thing, which would be great. Um, but then, you know, who has time to do things when you're 40? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Love it. You've got the band name. I guess, yeah, with your art skills, you've probably got the album cover designed. Just need the music now. Yeah. And also, I'm, yeah, again, legally, I don't know how this works, but if somebody else hears this and decides to form a band <laughs> called The Worms, they can expect a knock at the door because I'm, I'm not having it. It's mine. Let me have something. Let me have something, for God's sake. <laughs> Need to get that copyright notice in the podcast. Yeah, next week. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can we NFT this podcast? I don't know. Is that the next step? Um, Tom, well, have a look into it. Yeah. I will. Yeah. yeah. Someone, someone needs to look into it. What this actually means. Um, Tom, best gig uh, as Blackwire. What would stand out? Um, right. Let me think. Give me a second. Right. Okay. I've got it. Um, do is. Uh, I've talked about Middlesbrough a lot in this, haven't I? I'm not even from Middlesbrough, that's the other two. But there's, uh, there was a festival called Middlesbrough Music Live. I don't know if it's still going, um, but it was amazing. And we played at a venue. It was kind of like, imagine South by Southwest, but in the Northeast and shit weather. Um, <laughs> and not as big. Uh, but we played this venue called Jumping Jacks and 
I think we were on with the Cribs and I think I think it was the Paddingtons, us, and then the Cribs. Oh, what lineup? And it, it it was amazing. You know, all the bands were were fantastic. The crowd was incredible, and it was just one of those kind of not a sound sort of um, you know all like hippy dippy or whatever you know, but it was one of those kind of gigs where you're on stage and there's that moment of clarity where everything else around you is just completely silent, you know, even though you know, there's huge racket going on as the crowd and everything sort of slows down. And it was this sort of like, like really nice sort of moment of like, fucking hell, I get to do this as a job. You know, this, this is what I get to do every day if I want to. And it was brilliant. It was, um, it was fantastic. My crowd mm-hmm. surfed whilst I was playing the bass. I'd like to see, a lot of the other bands do that. <laughs> you had your trousers on? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're asking you're asking a question there that doesn't. I mean, there's a there's a fifty fifty answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, lo- last up, Tom. Can you pick out the Black Wire song that you're most proud of? Uh, yes, and it's on the first album, and it's called. Uh, 800 million heartbeats and it's it's a song we, I don't think as far as I'm aware we never ever played it live I don't know why um, but I remember being in the studio and we recorded it and it sounded fucking awful it sounded like it sounded like a heavy metal song we sounded like killing joke or something like that um, <laughs> And we just couldn't figure out what was going on. And so we had a break and we went to the pub and drank about 10 pints and came back. And we we're like, right, just take everything off, take these layers of guitars off, take all this other nonsense off and just stripped it down. And then Cy went in and put these sort of like almost Pixies style backing vocals on it. And the minute kind of like everything had been stripped back and that had been put on, it just sort of fell into place. And I think because again being the first time being in a recording studio and being able to see that kind of process of magic happen um it, it really stuck with me and to this day that song um kind of resonates with me far more than anything else that we did and nice. it's called 800 million heartbeats you know it's a great title that is a great song title i love that yeah. Um, thanks so much for uh, coming on to the podcast though. Been great thank you very much for having me and I hope you both stay safe and well you too nice cheers, cheers. It's JCPenney's happy birthday sale, and the gifts are all yours. Celebrate this Saturday with an in-store coupon giveaway. You could peel and reveal $10, $50, or even $100 off. Don't miss out, but if you do, grab a coupon on the JCPenney app to save an extra 25% all week long. Hurry, party ends Sunday. JCPenney. Coupon giveaway valid 415 while supplies last. In-store only. Must be 18 or older. Percent off coupon valid through 416. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details.